Welcome to While You Were Steeping. My name is Hayden Rogers. And I'm Michael Mandelios. So grab a cup of tea and let's get started. So we're going to jump straight into another piece of significant tea history, but Hayden and I had a good old chat and we decided the the history of tea is quite a monolith. It's a it's a huge undertaking. Like so we literally just started with history that was thousands of years ago. <laughs> yeah, five, four or five thousand years ago is a long way back to start. And if we go chronologically from there, it's going to take us a long time to get anywhere, you know. Uh, anywhere that's relevant to us in the modern era. So we've decided we're going to jump around the key milestones of tea history for a little while. That's right. Uh, And today we are going to talk about the Boston Tea Party. Everyone's sort of heard about the Boston Tea Party at one point or another. We're going to explore exactly what that is. And Michael, tell us why this is sort of relevant today. Well, it's it's particularly coincidental that we're discussing the Boston Tea Party today. Today is the 3rd of June uh, that we're recording this episode, the 3rd of June 2020, and it's about the seventh day of um, massive riots and protests in the United States in response to the death of George Floyd and um, and many, many uh, deaths in police custody or in police action of black Americans that have led up to this point. And it, there seems to be a real cultural tipping point uh, that that we've reached and that's been coming a long, long, long time. Uh, And of course, it's brought about the questions of what what protesting looks like and what kinds of changes it can instigate. And so it's a sheer coincidence, but it seems very timely that we're talking about one of the most historic and uh, influential protests in the beginning of the American history. Yeah, which just happens to be all about tea which is particularly unusual i think it's certainly the most dramatic i think event in the history of tea because for the most part we tea drinkers are considered to be fairly mild-mannered i'd say (laughs) true true but i guess well yeah it is sort of just i think fascinating how how many spaces tea sort of is included in, you know, like how many points of history and and really significant milestones in history that tea is sort of like a backdrop to. And they always seem to be surprising. So on that note, let's get straight into our first and probably most surprisingly dramatic piece of tea history. So the history of the Boston Tea Party. Now, um, American listeners will probably have a fair bit of background knowledge on this already, especially given that it was probably taught, I imagine, in early classroom school learning um, as part of the, well, as part of the journey to independence. For the rest of the world, I know for a fact for myself, Hayden, I knew about the Boston Tea Party in abstract at best. Yeah, yeah, I... I sort of knew there was like a riot. I actually, but I often, I, I think until probably I started researching this, I thought the Boston Tea Party was like a political party called the Boston Tea Party. Oh, okay. All right. That's interesting. I, I knew it was an event. I knew it was an event and that it was in some way, shape or form um, associated with, you know, civil disobedience or civil unrest. 
um, but I didn't really know the specifics of it at all. So uh, I'm gonna we're gonna walk you through the beginning of the history, at least, of what led up to the event. So the event itself took place on December 16 in 19. Uh, Let's try that again. <laughs> The event itself <laughs> began uh, on December 16 in 1773. Now, for about a decade prior, the British government had introduced a whole bunch of taxes spanning across all of their colonies uh, across the world, including a stamp tax, which was introduced in 1765, and that was on n- nearly all forms of paper, whether it was playing cards, uh, labels, packaging, uh, actual paper products, etc., etc., all forms of paper. And then one year later, the Townsend taxes were on nearly all essential goods, including paint, lead, oil, and tea, etc. Now, it's important to remember for our non-American audiences, at this point, the Americans in America were not American. They were still at this point just uh, British colonizers. They were colonial Brits in North America, um, but they had not yet, well, seceded, basically, um, from the UK. Now, they took particular issue with all of these taxes because at the time, the colonies had no representatives in Parliament. Um, so, I mean, at this point, we can already see where this is heading. The The lack of representation and, and democracy, obviously, is always a good boiling point for something to go <laughs> wrong. Yeah, and there was that um, phrase, which apparently is quite famous to Americans, which is no taxation without representation. That's right. Um, And so what's particularly interesting is that after introducing all of these taxes, um, in Boston alone, there was a considerable amount of troop presence from the British government. So they sent 2,000 British troops to essentially enforce those taxes in Boston, despite the fact that the population of Boston at the time was only 16,000 colonizers. So it's quite a lot. And, and they were, and they were doing this nearly all over the country in all of the, um, in all of the colonial settlements. So one of then the next kind of major boiling points was the Boston massacre in 1770. So at this point, four years after the implementation of the towns and taxes. There was a riot outside a store that was owned by a British loyalist, and this riot um, was was basically, you know, fairly peaceful protest. They were, um, for the most part, just just you know, calling out names and and throwing things, but not actually damaging property. And uh, the owner of the store shot his rifle outside out through his window to break up the crowd, and an eleven year old boy was hit. And killed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, which, of course, then created further and further division. And then there was only two weeks later yet another riot, and this was the Boston Massacre. So in the Boston Massacre, um, a crowd arrived out front of the King's um, storage facility for the King's uh, funds, and they they protested outside this building and eventually, after getting resistance from the British uh, soldier that was guarding the building, they started to throw snowballs and potentially even pieces of ice. So there's a bit of um, there's a bit of dispute as to how peaceful these protesters were. And then things got really muddled up. There was a whole bunch of uh, 
communication issues, including the fact that uh, bells were rung, which would normally in Boston indicate a fire. And so when the soldier ended up being wounded by the by the protesters, um, reinforcements arrived and ended up shooting the protesters. Um, five were killed, six were wounded, which at the time was considered massive, uh, a massive, massive deal. So there's a lot of there's a lot of dispute as to how much uh, how much violence was instigated on either side and whether or not there was actually an order given to fire from the uh, reinforcements that arrived to um, to defend the soldier that was guarding the king's store. Uh, but nonetheless, five men were five protesters were killed and six were wounded, and this massively massively stoked the uh, the fire effectively of resentment towards the British government. Now, what's particularly important to note is that most of the taxes that I mentioned were actually eventually repealed. And the reason that um, we refer to it as the Boston Tea Party to this day is, well, aside from the, the details of the event, which we will get to, the fact that the tea tax was the only one that wasn't lifted. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that's the case. Part of it um, suggests that it had a lot to do with bailing out the East India uh, Company, and and to um, and to also create a presence of British-owned and British-taxed tea in the American colony, where there was up until this point really a very strong presence of smuggled tea or locally grown tea. Um, And there's a really interesting um, fact that we'll get to on that as well. So a lot of the colonists basically perceived this as trying to encourage, uh, trying to encourage British loyalism or trying to encourage complacency in having colonial customers buying British owned tea that was heavily taxed, even though the cost actually wasn't hugely different. um, It, because of course the the tea was so cheap coming in in bulk from the from uh the UK owned by the the East India Company it was actually very very affordable but it was heavily taxed and therefore the resentment from the uh colonial activists came from that side of the of the argument um yeah i definitely i i also read it was like um the East India Trade Company had like a big backlog of tea in England that's right. Yes. So th- there was also a huge amount of unused tea that needed to effectively be gotten rid of or sold off. Uh, and in, in trying to encourage uh, the sale of that tea, a lot of this tea was shipped off t- to America um, and the American uh, colonialists were expected to basically just cop the, cop the tax. Mm. Um, and then so we come to the British sending these, like, three, well, I, it was originally four, but apparently one was destroyed at sea, um, three shipments full of tea um, into Boston Harbour. Um, and that was on November 28th, 1773. They, and they have a town meeting, uh, and basically Samuel Adams is like, let's go send some people down to the docks to sort of like guard these boats so that they can't unload this tea. Now for reference, Samuel Adams was the leader of the Sons of Liberty, yes? 
Uh, yes, is he? I actually didn't know that. One of the leaders, I believe, of the Sons of Liberty. Okay. Now, the Sons of Liberty, uh, do you want to talk about them? Uh, I guess they are just like a, like a revolutionary sect, you know? They are a group, you, you probably have more information about them, but they're like a group of uh, revolutionaries who are sort of, you know, creating uh, murmurs and, you know, movement towards a independent government, I suppose, and control of their own affairs. That's right. Okay, so let's go back to the meeting that was held at the um, the South Wharf Meeting House. Yes. So they have this meeting. They go down to the docks, um, and they are this. Uh, it's the royal appointed officials, right? Um, which is significant later um, that are stopping these ships from unloading their cargo. And this turns into like a stalemate where Boston Harbour isn't accepting these goods, but they're not doing anything to the boats, but it's a stalemate where they're just sort of not accepting this cargo from Britain. And it lasts for, I believe, 19 days until we get to the night in question where they they ask... (laughs) the night of the Boston Tea Party, where they ask uh, again for the boats to go back to Britain, be like, please just leave us alone. We don't want your tea. Um, you know, it's so this was at this point, I guess, a relatively peaceful protest. Mm-hmm. But they have another meeting because obviously Britain is like, no, thanks. We'll deliver the tea. Uh, please take it. And... Um, well, having said Britain says that, it's obviously the people on the boats because this is not the age of like calling up Britain and being like, hey, <laughs> no, no, text, have- no text messages with the king. No. Um, so they have a second meeting. Samuel Adams kind of to the effect goes, there's like very little record of this apparently because um, just of this whole night in general, because apparently the uh, Sons of Liberty were sort of all really like thick as thieves and sworn to secrecy. So there's like, like we don't really even know who's really involved here. He pretty much says that this meeting can do no more, basically. That's like words to that effect, which basically is saying we can't just talk about this anymore. We have to do something. Well, and supp- su- well, supposedly as well, the governor basically refused to offer any kind of compromise. So we, you, we had a total stalemate of um of the colonists basically saying well you need to lift the tax otherwise we're not going to accept the product and you know the folks on the ship and the british elected governors as you said sorry british appointed governors as you said basically just saying no you will and that's mm. it it was just back and forth and back and forth of nah yaha nah yaha yeah which is just infuriating and they're like well we're not getting anywhere um so it's sort of yeah, this sort of like sneaky, like very political, you know, not not saying it, but saying it, basically being like, okay, time to go, you know, throw this tea into the harbour, which is what happens now. So <laughs> um, uh, the Sons of Liberty. Spoiler alert, Hayden, God. <laughs> uh, the Sons of Liberty. This is, the, this is like the, I couldn't really find any information on this. I don't know if you did, but they all dressed as Native Americans, okay. as Mohawk Indians. I was particularly fascinated and a little bit unsettled by this, so I actually did a lot of research on this. But I'll let you keep going, and then and okay, then we'll good. come back to we'll talk we'll talk about the Native American disguises in a minute. 
Okay, good. Because all I I found one thing that was like um, some I think was just very optimistic Americanism being like they did it to show that they were American, <laughs> you know. Which I don't know about that. Well, we'll, um, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. So they storm the boats, uh, dressed as Native Americans, and th- like they all know, like it's a port town. They all know where the tea is stored on these boats. They go. Get the crates, crack them open, throw them into the harbour. There were cries, apparently, uh, of tonight Boston becomes one big teapot <laughs> or similar, which I thought was adorable. Um, we love a good catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they're turning the har- they're pouring all the tea into the harbour, effectively, you know, turning the harbour into a giant teapot. Um, yeah, so they storm the boats, throw the tea in the water, and, you know, that's sort of the end of the standoff there. Um, but obviously, this is not going to be received well by Britain. No, I am. Um, but let's talk about the Native American disguises. Yeah. So interestingly, there's a little bit of truth to that um, to that unsettling little anecdote that you found. So um, it is true they did disguise themselves as uh, na- as Native Americans, either with um, face paint, headdresses, appropriate garb, etc. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the disguises were not intended to be particularly effective, and they may have actually been more symbolic than effective. So there's a degree to which uh, the most horrible um, perspective definitely has a bit of uh, truth to it, which is that they disguise themselves as Native Americans so that the the crimes would be blamed on the local Indigenous population. There is, yeah, which is, you know, icky for a whole bunch of reasons. But most of the telling suggests that actually, no, it was um, a symbolic demonstration of effectively anti-colonialism. And there was a lot of historical precedent up to this point that actually does support that. So, for example, the locally grown and or smuggled tea was often referred to as Indian tea, Indian being, of course, Native American. Um, And similarly, it was actually not at all uncommon for um, 18th century... English protesters to dress themselves in ways that were um, mixed with other cultures or or in any way some kind of a farce. So um, imitating other cultures, dressing as women, dressing as Catholic priests, etc. And the whole point of this was to create the idea or an atmosphere of misrule. Um, so there's actually a, a quote um that the Sons of Liberty uh, claimed that they were basically, uh, by adopting the identity of Native Americans, they were saying that they were defiant, they were unbowed, they wouldn't be defeated. Um, So it was actually very common for them to use uh, Native American imagery as imageries of um, independence and defiance and um, a lack of British civil rule. Um, which which is inherently quite interesting. And, of course, now looking back on the history of American uh, protest and also looking back on the American history of their treatment of Native American people uh, is very questionable and um, hypocritical, you could say, for sure. I think it's really interesting, actually, that uh, you've said this because I kind of, in my reading, just assumed that the... Uh, 
the disguise they were like trying to disguise themselves mm. uh, similar to like modern day thieves uh you know wearing like a clown mask or such if they were you know when you're robbing just like wearing like a plastic mask Yes, so there was actually um, Native American imagery used on the obelisk that Paul Revere designed um, to be erected under the Liberty Tree in Boston as well. Uh, so again, that there's a there's actually quite a lot of historical precedent of um, anti-colonial uh, Americans before they were Americans using uh, Native American imagery to effectively. Uh, symbolize their defiance of British rule. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, and particularly interesting because, as you said, it really does sound like quite a cop-out um, as, yeah. as an explanation. And, of course, there is definitely a lot to be said for this more sinister, um, more sinister perspective or, or likelihood that they were also disguising themselves so that they wouldn't be held accountable for their crimes. And sure enough... Uh, only one was identified and arrested. Only one of the many people. So, so what actually transpired over that night? Um, as as we said, a very large group of men, uh, led by these Sons of Liberty, or or at the very least, there were a lot of them present. Uh, boarded the docked ships, the three docked ships that we mentioned, which, by the way, uh, tragically ironic, were all American owned, um, and American built. So even oh. yeah, so even though they were they were shipping tea from the UK, benefiting the UK, they were actually all um they were all colonially um built at the time. Uh they boarded the ships and over the span of three hours, that's how long it took them, um, because and there were a hundred of them, uh, they tipped three hundred and forty-two chests of tea. And of course, they had to hack into them with their um, tomahawks before throwing them into the sea so that the tea would be properly wasted and ruined. So it took them nearly three hours. Uh, There was over 95,000 pounds or 45 tonnes of tea uh, wasted. (laughs) And it's estimated that in today's uh, today's money, we'd be looking at roughly $2 million worth of, uh, of thrown away product. I love that. Three hours of tea making. Three hours of tea making with some very, 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 very salty brew. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so Uh, what happened next? So, England is is pissed off. They're like, okay, you're going to throw our tea in in the bay? Sure. How about we introduce a whole lot of horrible... Uh, acts into Parliament and pass them. Um, so in America, this is actually I find really interesting. In America, these are known as the Intolerable Acts, and in England, they're known as the Coercive Acts. Which I mean tells you everything you need to know about <laughs> British colonialism right there. Yeah. So there are four. There were four acts. Firstly, uh, the Boston Port Act. They just closed the Boston Port. They were like, okay, uh, let's close your ports. So you have no trade. And we'll put a blockade of ships out here. Excellent. Then there's the Massachusetts Government Act, uh, which they just, England really, like, pulled the rug out from underneath the government there and reduced their legislative power and basically uh, gave Britain all the the power to, like, appoint uh, leaders in 
the government. So at that and... point, there were no more free elections, right? They just appointed yeah. all the town officials? Yeah, correct. Wow. And they limited town meetings to once a year. Oh my so God. basically just like, just like your like freedom of, you know, a right to assembly and that sort of thing. Just like, no, uh, basically stay at home. Uh, <laughs> then we had the Administration of Justice Act. This was why it was um, uh, significant that it was uh, uh, royal officials who were the ones who stopped the tea from being loaded uh, off the ships because the Administration of Justice Act allowed the trials of accused royal officials to be moved off American soil and into British soil. Oh, oh, that's not good. No. <laughs> um, which apparently George Washington called it the Murder Act because. He just, you know, pretty much assumed they would be taking them to Britain to, like, harass them. Yeah, or... that's that's the terror of extradition right there. My God. Yeah. Lastly, we have the Quartering Act, which is super uncomfortable and just a big f*** you to uh, the whole settlement. Um, because they just allowed, it just allowed English soldiers to stay wherever they wanted. Oh, Yes. Yes, I did read about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were required to board um, British soldiers in any any unoccupied uh, property. I think occupied as well. I think it was just literally a British soldier could come to your house and be like, I'm staying here now. Oh, my God. And you can only imagine the, like, sort of horrible situations that would put people in, particularly, I imagine, women. Um, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, all of these coercive slash intolerable acts uh, lead to the colonies, except for Georgia, because they're busy killing the Native Americans, um, to come together in the first Continental Congress. So, this is where... Here we go. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding. There's the buzzword. <laughs> this is where the Boston Tea Party sort of, you know, uh, becomes much... You, you know, a much larger deal in history, you know. At this point, it's still a significant rebellion. But now we've sort of brought all of the British colonies together for the first time and they have a Congress, which I thought was really interesting. It lasted almost two months. And I just thought, wouldn't it be great if our leaders today could Sit still actually, for two months? Yeah, actually, like, come and, and talk about important things for two months instead of, like, you know, never, ever all being in the same room at the same time. <laughs> anyway, yes. So they uh, write a petition to the king asking for them to essentially rescind uh, the coercive acts. And if they, it's sort of a threat, you know. So, um, oh, this Congress is almost a year later, by the way, from the Boston Tea Party mm -hmm. proper. Um, so they say either take away these uh, acts and, you know, give us our freedoms back or we will stop, uh, we'll boycott trade with England, with Britain, which is, you know, a big deal. And, of course, Britain doesn't comply <laughs> and uh, they start uh, to boycott them. And the, uh, the imports from Britain drops by 97%. <laughs> 97%. <laughs> That's insane. Um, but then, of course, England fires back immediately because, you know, we've had a year to plan for this. And 
they uh, introduced the New England Restraining Act, which sounds delightful. And uh, it prohibits the colonies from trading with any country other than England. Um, oh, my God. So now you have uh, England saying you can only trade with us, or Britain saying you can only trade with us. The colonies saying we will not trade with you, we're boycotting you, and obviously they have to not trade with the. Okay, I'm fully aware that hindsight is twenty twenty, but I just don't understand how anyone at any point thought that that was a good idea that was going to end well. I don't know if they did, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess uh, the sort of drop in in imports from Britain would have created a lot of tension, which of course it does, because then we are sort of the restraining act is the inciting action which leads to the first military uh sort of event of the american revolutionary war well i guess that just goes to show what you know one one little one little protest can achieve in the end absolutely um and just like i think amazing that really obviously there was all this tension with the taxes and things but like this event uh which you know, tea was the centre of, because it, I think tea, you know, it represents this sort of like very, it, it's just like, it, it's, it, it's, tea is freedom, you know, in, in an, to sort of make a bit of a meal out of it. But like, it is sort of just an everyday thing at this point, you know, it's something that everyone enjoyed and it was the most consumed beverage and just having, you know, unfettered access to this very simple thing was a big symbol. Well, and that was especially, as you said, it was by that point, it was drunk by everyone, you know, rich, mm. middle class, poor, etc. You know, so to, to try and put tariffs on something that was so universally uh, enjoyed and appreciated was definitely a very risky move. Also, we were talking about examples of precedents for the Native American disguises. There was actually um, an instance in 1772 where there was a ship that was targeted because it was pursuing smugglers off uh, the coast of New England. It was pursuing um, goods smugglers. And so a group of colonists dressed up as uh, Native Americans and they rowed to the ship at night and they set the ship on fire. Um so what? that yeah, so there had actually already been a history of people boarding British colonial ships dressed in Native American garb um as an act of protest. Uh so it it definitely wasn't just uh singular to the Boston Tea Party. Also interesting in terms of the imagery that we were talking about before, there were also anti-British uh proclamations that were distributed by some patriotic groups and they were signed the Mohawks, which is Kind of interesting, oh. yeah. Um, so again, very, very common it seems uh, within early colonial America for the colonists to use Native American imagery to basically symbolise that they were free of British rule. So there we have it. Turns out one of the most historic uh, instances of protest and one of the most dramatic pieces of history around tea ended up leading to what we now know as the United States of America in a very long throw kind of arc way. Yeah. I mean, but it is directly responsible. Yeah. And interesting as well, because for such a long time, America had uh, such a, you know, star spangled history of being, you know, the pinnacle of freedom and the pinnacle of uh, democratic 
resistance and democratic um, civil disobedience. Uh, so it's very interesting that it all started with that. I, I wish I could say that um, I still feel the same way about where they stand on on that world stage, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah, it is sort of very interesting looking back at this sort of like really idealistic and like moralistic sort of America, you know, the that sort of young upstart <laughs> group of, of colonies, you know, finding their feet, wanting, you know, better for themselves and that sort of thing and having congresses that last two months and then <laughs> there we are today. And I find it particularly interesting um, given, and we, we said this already, but I find it really interesting given the symbolism that they attributed to Native Americans in terms of um, really empathising with that freedom of spirit and a refusal to be governed by an imperial and, you know, Eurocentric body, that they empathised with quite clearly makes it all the more kind of awfully poetic and terrible that they ended up going on to so systematically destroy an entire yeah. population and, and really... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the hypocrisy runs deep. I think. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance with like those two ideas. <laughs> cognitive know. dissonance is definitely the right the right way to word it. Well, now that we've now that we've ended our sermon on democracy in America and <laughs> and civil liberty through tea, shall we get to some drinking? Yes. Let's get started. I'm particularly excited today. Normally, as I'm preparing all three of them, uh, all three of our teas, once I take all of the strainers out, I'm worried that I'm going to forget which ones are which. But that's not possible today because we've got such incredibly different teas. Um, so there's there's no mistaking them, that's for sure. Um, so today we have two Elbs Doc teas again and another one of our Rabbit Hole Native Australian teas. So we're trying... Should we try native mint first? That's our uh, rabbit hole tea. Absolutely. Now, a quick disclaimer, if you are going to order this sample pack uh, from the rabbit hole, uh, these glass vials are wonderful, but just a heads up, maybe grab like a, um, just a very small, thin skewer or something. Uh, You may need to use a very, a very thin implement to just dislodge Mm. some of the tea from these glass vials. Um, The native mint and the strawberry gum green in particular, they can get a little stuck in there. All right, so let's let's have a whiff of okay. this. Here we go. Mm. So this this native mint has uh, peppermint in it, but is uh, also paired with wild harvested Australian native river mint and peppermint gum. Again, a variety of gum that I that has flavour, which I did not know. Seems like a distinctly Australian thing at this point. Mm. I think. Okay, shall we? Oh, it's really, it's so strong. I love, the, I, I love that smell. And you can always tell when a mint tea is really fresh, you know, it's made of like yeah. proper freshly ground mint leaves as opposed to, I don't know, I find that mint in particular is one of those ones that doesn't do well with mass manufacturing. Yeah, this is, and this is such a sweet smell. Mm. Okay, let's give it a go. Mm. Mm. That's great. Mm. Definitely minty as opposed to pepperminty, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't have that that burn, which you know sometimes you love, but because that is like a dis- there is a distinct difference between mint because you can almost taste it's like a bit more I don't know juicy. Is that a good description word? Like, Ooh, okay. I don't I don't know that I'm with you on that, but I <laughs> I, I get where you're going. Um, as opposed to like peppermint, which is like gonna you know like go up into your sinuses and yeah. you know. Really that said, this does have, it doesn't have quite that, um, that really like tame mint taste that you sometimes get in some teas. Like it does have a little bit of that clearing feeling. It doesn't, oh, you're definitely. right. It doesn't, it doesn't like shoot up into, into your, <laughs> into your nasal cavity or anything, but it, it does have that really kind of, um, cleansing kind of feeling. Mm. I'd love to try all of the, like the three ingredients separately mm. just to know what I'm looking for, you know? So this tea we brewed, uh, with boiling water. So hundred degree water for five minutes. Um, and again, you can leave, I've left my infuser in again cause I'm naughty, but because it's herbal, you can sort of get more flavor out of it. The longer you brew it. What I really like about this one as well is it doesn't have that sleepy tea feeling you know like it doesn't feel like it was only made to be drunk just before bed i also i actually feel like in a way you could drink this to kind of kick you awake in the morning as well because of course they say that mint mint is really good for focus totally it's super refreshing and actually now that you've said that um you could you could do like an iced version which would be like in in summer would be oh that would be weird i think maybe you're right like it could be really good but it would definitely be a bit weird okay i suppose we should move on i'm really enjoying the feeling of this this warm peppermint it's it's winter here in australia for anyone who hasn't clocked that already um so it's it's beautiful but yes we should move on should we move on to the second herbal tea or to the second to the first black tea? Let's let's do the lemongrass and ginger because I'm excited to compare this one to our lemongrass and ginger from last week. Okay. So last week, as a reminder, we had a rabbit hole native uh, Australian lemongrass ginger using lemon myrtle and such. Um, this week we have the Elmstock lemongrass and ginger serenity. Ha <laughs> um, which is just ginger, lemongrass, lemon, and licorice. I think tea, mm. tea-related puns are definitely my favourite kind of pun. I, and I'm, a, I'm very yeah. partial to a good pun. And apparently it's just sourced from Germany. Um, oh, interesting. So, okay. Again, boiling water, five to six minutes. Again, I've left mine, uh, my infuser in. This could be good, actually, with honey. I haven't even tried it yet, but oh, we know always. that's true. That's, that's my okay, go-to that's, if I'm feeling good. sick. All right, here we go. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's quite different to a lemongrass and ginger. like. Just and this is really interesting because tea. this is exactly the conversation we had about the rabbit hole one last week. I said that I really liked that one, but it didn't really strike me as being particularly different. This one... Is mm. jumping out at me in a different kind of way. It's it's sweet. There's there's something in it that's making it quite sweet. It is. You know what? I think it's the licorice. Um, licorice root always has this uh, like uh, it touches like the sweet yeah, yeah, part yeah, of yeah, your yeah. palate. Um, like if you think of like a licorice and um, fennel mm-hmm. tea or anything like that, like a licorice yeah. root tea, it's always that like without having any yes, sweetener, it's, it's quite sweet. This is a. It's really good. 
but also, yeah, it's very different to what I would have expected. It's still, don't get me wrong, if anyone's thinking about getting some of this, it's definitely still going to fill your lemongrass and ginger needs. It doesn't not taste like what's on the packet, but Mm. it's just different. different. It's It's really... uh, To me, the primary flavours are actually lemon and licorice as opposed to lemongrass and ginger, (laughs) which are the two, like, sort of rogue... Uh, no, I'm it. with you. I'm not. I'm not really getting much ginger here at all, actually. No, me either. Mm. But it's delicious. Like, yeah, it's so funny because again, it's not really your standard lemongrass and ginger, which I guess would make sense. Like, why would these companies want to produce the same thing that everyone else is That's producing? That's right. And also, um, just speaking about like, you know, look and texture. I love the look of lemongrass and ginger tea as it's going into a strainer. I just think it looks different to anything else that you put in a teapot, you know? You you see it straight away and you go, that's lemongrass and ginger tea. Yeah, totally. Mm. Okay, again, I'm begrudgingly moving on. I'm really <laughs> not not wanting to let go of any of these. All right. So the last tea we have, again from Elmstock, is a Darjeeling Premium. Uh, obviously, Darjeeling from the Darjeeling province in the Himalayas. This is known as the champagne of teas. Uh, just fun fact. Uh, and Hang on, why? Because you, because you, can't, um, you can't call a tea Darjeeling if it's not from Darjeeling? I guess that's true. I guess that's probably why. It doesn't actually give me any of those details here, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Interesting. Okay. I wonder if they have a locale-based patent like they have in Champagne. We'll have to, we're going to have a Darjeeling episode, so we'll, we'll know all of these things soon enough. For maybe sure, that, maybe yes. that's next week. <laughs> you yeah, never know. F- find out more. <laughs> um, so this was, again, boiling water, four to five minutes. Um, we don't have any milk or sweetening in here. It is a black tea, Darjeeling. Uh, let's so you could theoretically put milk or sugar in it if you wanted to. Before we go, I just want to talk about the colour of this. Mine's mm. come out this gorgeous dark amber. Yes, me too. And it's my favourite thing about Darjeeling teas because, you know, they are fundamentally a black tea, but come out looking the same as a traditional black. They've got that really gorgeous yellow hue to it. And yeah. Okay. Oh, we should go. Here we go. Oh, whoa. Mm. Okay. Oh, it's good. I don't mm. know if it's my <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's no, it, it's it's very good for what it is. Um, like you can tell that it's it's well made for sure, and it's and it's very um it's very subtle, but it is quite. It's got a fair bit of uh, strength to it, and a fair it bit does. of. It's hang on. Bitter? Are you going to say bitter? Well, yes. I was trying to think of a more sophisticated word or a more detailed word than bitter, but that is the first thing that I'm getting. Mm. Yeah, it almost feels like it's been, I don't know, I don't want to tell them that they've done it wrong on their instructions, but it kind of feels like we overbrewed. Oh, okay, I'm not getting that. It doesn't feel incorrect. Um, no, I'm not getting the same kind of bitterness that you get if you if you burn tea. I'm not getting that. It, it just, it's very strong in its flavour profile. 
Mm. It looks gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> and and the thing is it is good. Like I could I could easily finish this cup. Um but I don't think it's what the first thing I'd grab off the shelf. I think also when it comes to drinking black teas for us, like, you know, we've we've done a lot of we you know, we said last week we put milk in our black tea and that sort of thing. So I think black tea actually without that sort of a bit of like uh, the toning down that milk adds to it. It can, you know, it's a different experience. Yes, for sure. And it it is worth noting, you know, t- take my opinion at least with a grain of salt because I am a bit of a weak tea drinker in that regard. I'm not a huge fan of a black tea by itself. Um, or, I mean, God knows I don't drink black coffee ever. Um, mm. But, mm, yeah, I'm wondering... See, I was going to say, I'm wondering if I should have added milk or sugar to this, but I wouldn't with a Darjeeling normally. Hmm. Yeah. So, hmm. It's good, though, in a weird way. <laughs> it's just not quite what I'd what I jump for. Yeah, and I, I feel like I don't actually have enough of a, a sort of handle on uh, other Darjeeling's like other varieties that I've tried, you know, I, I don't okay. really have a handle on like how this compares to them, but it's something that I'm sure you'll find out more about as we taste more things. Mm. I'm so warm now from drinking all these teas. <laughs> yeah, I know. Nice and, nice and cozy. Sure. All right. So Hayden, what's your winner for the day? My winner, I would have to say just for the sheer, like, Unexpectedness would have to be the uh, lemongrass and ginger. Interesting. Okay, I'll take that. I I loved that lemongrass and ginger, and I think I agree. It, it's definitely um, it's definitely a very different, different style to what I would have expected. I think mm. my winner for the day is actually still the um the mint from Rabbit Hole, the native mint, um, which is I think just because it 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 just had a really like. Nice, clean, and fresh flavour to it. It was so nice to have a mint tea that really felt like it had been picked off the tree in the backyard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right. Well, do we have a giveaway this week for our, for our listeners? We do. We are giving away not one, not two, but four <laughs> packets of tea. Uh, the two Elmstock uh, varieties that we just tried, so the Darjeeling Premium and the Lemongrass and Ginger Serenity, uh, we're giving away uh, two of each of those today. Well, given that we've had the serenity pun and then not my cup of tea, I think that our challenge should be to tag us in a brilliant tea-related pun uh, of your own making on your Instagram or on our Facebook. Uh, just tag while you were steeping. And if we see your post, then you'll go straight into the draw. Absolutely. Um, I love that idea. And I can't wait to read all of your hilarious hopefully puns. <laughs> oh, there, there will be terrible Related ones as well, and we'll enjoy those just as much. And I guess, should the, the winner be chosen on merit or just on random? Oh, choice? no, I think that this this week's winners will be chosen on merit. So you've got a good shot. As, as, as we said, we're giving away four bags. So as long as you're the best, the second best, the third best, or the fourth best. <laughs> yeah. That's how meritocracy works, right? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Okay. Wonderful. 
And don't forget, if you'd like us to try one of your teas on the podcast, uh, if you're able to deliver within Australia, just contact us at steepingpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on our social media and we can arrange to see if we can give your product a lovely review or a not so lovely review. Your fate will be in our hands. <laughs> That's right. And also, as always, if you uh, have, you know, more knowledge about tea than we do and you want to correct us on anything or offer your sage wisdom and advice, then please get in touch with us and let us know. Yes, if you have personal history or family members who can tell us all about the Boston Tea Party because they were there, if you have a 300-year-old grandma who has some stories to share, <laughs> get them to contact us and tell us all about it. Absolutely. Well, until next week. Yeah. Tea infinity and beyond, which is a pun. Get out. Oh, it is a pun. Damn it. I have to allow it this week. (laughs) While You Were Steeping is a That's Not Canon Productions podcast. For more information, head to that'snotcanon.com. Canon with one N.